I have the very good fortune of uh, being invited occasionally to conferences and Bible meetings, and I, I get invited to go speak at other churches and gatherings of preachers, and, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, you can tell that there's a unity to what's going on. I've been to some conferences where the messages are, are fine. I'm not saying they're good or bad. I'm just saying that they seem unjointed from each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. There isn't a common theme running through all of the sermons of the conference. But I think if you've been paying attention, you have noticed that in this conference, there has been a tremendous amount of unity just fitting right together. Now listen, David and I, though David was at my house for a few days before the conference, we never talked about what we were going to preach about. Me and Roger Skeppel, we never talked about what we are going to preach about. I did not call Greg Wren and say, hey, what are you doing? This is what I'm going to be doing. This is what you should be doing. And then it'll all coalesce. It just all worked out that way. Because the Holy Spirit of God is functional, is operational, is active in this conference. And I... And I just don't want you to miss it because it would be easy to not recognize that that's exactly what's happening. I'm sitting back there listening to these various men speak and I'm thinking, oh, he stole my notes. But we're so in league with each other, it's absolutely great. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And in fact, I am once again going to piggyback this morning on some of the things that Greg Wren said last night. But before we start that, uh, I do want to thank you all for having me here yet again, Elder Spickard, Elder Pickett, and Elder Kennedy. You've been so very, very kind to me, and I do appreciate it. But I also want to say a quick word about the fact that what you've seen this week is a series of elders who have stood up here, a series of preachers who have stood up here and have preached the word to you, and none of these men, especially including myself, can do what we do without a great support system. And every time I look to my left, there's Elder Redmond, there's Elder Spickard standing over here. Every time I go in the back to put on the microphone or get a glass of water or something, they're right there. It's a little spooky. I mean, <laughs> they're just right there. What do you need? What can I get you? How can I help you? One of the deacons from GCA, the place where I'm so privileged to be the pastor, one of my deacons has been here all three days. Tom Tharp is sitting in the back there, and I'm just so very, very thankful for the deacons this morning. So, all right, you got your just due. Yeah, I just, I really like the deacons. Okay, now, as I just said, I'm going to piggyback a little bit on what Greg Wren said last night, because Greg spoke, should I say, uh, Elder Wren spoke. He spoke last night from Romans 8, and he stopped right at Romans 8.28. And I really wanted him to keep going. 
Because the second half of that chapter, I think, perfectly summarizes everything we've all been saying so far this week. So let's read it. Turn to Romans 8 for just a moment. And I'm going to start at Romans 8, 28, right where you left off. You gave us all the reasons for Romans 8, 28 and why all things work together for the good of those who belong to God, those who are the called according to His purpose. But the rest of it describes God's sovereignty and then even in the midst of God's sovereignty that we are called to suffer. And even though God is sovereign in all things, has decided what he's going to do, and we can count on him to do it, he is still the one we look to in the midst of the trouble that he brings into our lives. And that's all in Romans 8. So starting at Romans 8, 28, it says, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew. I've got to take one quick second because this is so easily misunderstood. You will notice that the text does not say that God knew things about certain people. Because so often people misread that to be God looking down the long telescope of time and seeing who's going to believe him, who's going to choose him. And because he foreknew that about those people, he then chose them in response. That's not what the text says. It's not that he knows things about people. He knows people. And in fact, the word foreknew means he had an intimate relationship with those people. The best example of it that you find in the Bible is Adam and Eve. It says that Adam knew Eve and she bore a child. That means they had an intimate relationship. He did not just know who she was. He did not just go, hi, Adam, who are you? Oh, Eve, pregnant. That didn't happen. He had an intimate relationship And so in that way, he knew her. Okay, that's the word that's being used here. God foreknew certain people. Okay, now we can read. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew had a relationship with in advance, he also predestined. Proorizo is the word. It's the word that means looking out into the horizon, into the distance. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn of many brethren. And whom he predestined, these, not all, but these who he predestined, he also called. And whom he called... Those are the ones he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense, glorified. Benny, do you feel glorified? Yeah, we're still down here in this mortal body. We're still struggling along. We're still doing the aches and pains of human life. But it's good to know that as we're going through this mortal life, God has already 
past tense, glorified those people who he predestined and called. Now, by the way, who is the actor in that section? And who is the passive recipient? Because far too often, again, salvation is referred to as something that human beings have to do. You've got to rev up your faith. You've got to put your confidence in Jesus. You have to make him your Lord and your Savior. You've got to do something. But throughout this passage that tells us exactly how people get saved, you will notice that human beings do nothing. All human beings do is get saved. But the one who's doing the saving is God himself. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might become the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So what? Are we going to say then to these things? If that's your theology of salvation, if that's how people get saved, then what are we going to say about it? Look at the next line. If God be for us, who can be against us? The world's against us. The world would rather we just shut up and go away. But in the end, it doesn't matter. I'm not trying to please the world. I'm not even ultimately as much as I love you, as much affection as I have for you. I'm not trying to please you. I'm playing to an audience of one. And I'm attempting to please him by treating his word fairly and rightly. And therefore, if he's pleased with what I'm doing, I don't care what you think. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, of course, there's the theology out there. By the way, none of this is my topic for this morning. This is just all free, okay? But but if we know that, that no one can be against us, the theology that's out there that says, if you're not careful, you can get yourself separated from God? I'm here to tell you today, when Paul lays out his theology of salvation, you can look at it everywhere. Every passage that has to do with how people get saved, never once, never nowhere, does he ever include the will of the individual. That doesn't exist. In fact, the word free will does not exist anywhere in the New Testament and only exists in the Old Testament when talking about a votive offering that people would make. But even then, it's not about their free will because they can't give the votive offering until after they've given all the tithes and offerings and sacrifices that God requires. So it's only after you've done all that that you can then choose to give a little more. That's the only place in the Bible that the word free will shows up. Never in the context of how people get saved will you find anything about people willing it. Instead, what you find is God foreordained, God predestined, God decided, He elected, He chose. He is always the actor. You are always the acted upon. But your opinion in the matter doesn't count. Again, there's a theology out there that says God gets a vote, 
Satan gets a vote, and you cast the deciding vote. That's wrong. Because when the voting took place, you weren't there. The election took place, and God did the choosing. And having chosen, you are acted upon by the sovereignty and the will of God who is determined to save you. Why? Because he loved you since before the foundation of the world. He foreknew you, and for that reason, he predestined, called, justified, and glorified you. Knowing all that, who can be against you? Nobody can be against you. Keep reading. What are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now listen to the logic here. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? If God's for us, who can be against us? There's no human that can be against us. What if the devil tries to charge me? What if Satan's got something against me? You know that whenever Satan stands before God and lays a charge against any of you, you know he's got you dead to rights. You know that you're guilty. So what is the response? Look at the response. No one's going to be able to charge you because the only one who can charge you is God and God is the one who justified you. So he's not going to charge you. He's the one who sent his son to die for your redemption. He's the one who bought you off the slave market of sin. He's the one who has justified you and made you perfectly righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. Therefore, who can lay anything to your charge? Only God can, and God's the one who justified you. Okay, so then maybe it's going to be Christ. He's the only one who can lay a charge against you. Who is the one that condemns? Jesus Christ is him who died. In other words, he's the one who did the redemptive work. He is not going to turn around and say guilty. Instead, he's already said redeemed, justified, bought out, glorified. He has already pronounced all that about you. He is not then going to change his mind and say, made a mistake, sorry. I got to rethink this because I had no idea you were going to be like this. Therefore, I condemn you. I charge you. So God's not going to charge you. Jesus Christ is not going to charge you. Christ Jesus is he who died, yea, rather, who was raised again, who is at the right hand of God. And what's he doing there? Is he charging you? He's interceding for you. So he's busy interceding. Now, who, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Apparently, Paul thinks that's all part of the Christian life. Apparently, all those things are coming your way. But those things can't separate you from God's love. 
even as you're in the midst of it. Isn't that what we talked about most of the day yesterday? Not just me, but Greg as well. And that theme kept resonating. That even as we go through these troubles and these trials, we are not separated from the love of God. For just as it's written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So I would say again, I think we should expect some trouble. We should expect some trials. If it is already prophesied and then validated by Paul that our station before God is as testimony to his goodness and his love even as we go through the trials that are conforming us to the image of Christ. Oh, but he's not done yet. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him that loved us. Okay, so in what way? Because at this very moment, I don't feel real conquering. How about you, James? You got that conquering thing down? Doing a bunch of conquering lately? Ugh, conquering. No, don't feel real conquering right now, but I got news for you. The death that's coming for all of us, and so far the ratio of death is a perfect one for one. Everybody gets one. And when the death that's coming for us, the enemy of death that is coming for us, when it comes for you, you're going to conquer. Because death is not going to hold you down. You're going to get up again, guaranteed by the fact that Christ got up again. If he got up the first fruits of the resurrection then there has to be a harvest of the resurrection. Otherwise, there's no first fruits. If he is the first fruit, then the harvest of the resurrection is going to happen and you are going to conquer death, hell, and the grave and you are going to stand before the Almighty God. And let me tell you, when it comes to conquering, that's conquering. That's conquering. I am convinced, verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That includes you. You're a created thing. No matter what you do, no matter how bad you mess up, you can't get yourself out of the love of God. Height, depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why we worship. That's why we're the kind of people we are. Those spirit-filled witnesses that, that David was talking about this morning. That's why we're like that. Thus ends the introduction. That's okay, as long as you didn't yell, Elder Watson. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fine. Come back, come back. 
I'm here to talk about sovereignty and evangelization. Now, David already talked a little bit this morning about evangelization, but I want to bore down on it and show how God's sovereignty is not contradictory to evangelization. Because there are people who want to say to us, well, if you believe in an absolutely sovereign God, if you believe everything we just read out of Romans 8, then you believe that God is the actor, and since he is the sovereign actor who saves whoever he wants, what's the point of evangelizing? Now, the easiest and quickest way to get rid of that argument is to point out that that theology of Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans, all the way to Romans 11, and that theology of Ephesians 1 and 2, that theology of God's predestinary will and his electing according to how he chooses to do it, that theology comes from the Apostle Paul. And what we've seen time and time again this week is that the Apostle Paul suffered hugely for how much he evangelized. That's right. So if there was a contradiction between God's sovereignty and evangelization, Paul wouldn't have been doing that. Paul had an unbelievable conversion. Paul was directly converted by Jesus Christ himself. Paul was on his way to Damascus when he was knocked down, when a bright light came to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Or he sent to Ananias to regain his sight and have Ananias pray over him. And then he's converted. Now what that shows you is God is perfectly capable of saving somebody directly. And yet, even though Paul tells that story over and over again, I think it appears three times in the book of Acts. Even though Paul tells that story, he never says that's how people get saved. He never makes... His conversion, the standard for Christian conversion. Even though he was saved cataclysmically and directly, he then went out by himself preaching under torment, under being stoned and left outside the walls of Lystra for dead, after being jailed a day and night in the deep, all of the pain and the suffering that he went through, he still did not preach Okay, if you want to get saved, here's what you do. You go out and you kill some Christians. And then you go to the Middle East. And and if you're on the same road path that I was on, then maybe a bright light will come down from heaven and, and say to you directly, Robert, Robert, why are you persecuting me? And then maybe you'll get saved. That's the way Paul was saved, but it's not the way that he said salvation happens. Instead, his theology was that God uses means. And the means that he uses in salvation is the gospel. God uses the means of human beings talking to other human beings in order for people to come to faith. Now let me define a few terms first so that you can see how intimately connected this idea of evangelization is with the gospel because I think far too often... People think that when they use the word evangelist, you're talking about some guy who comes through town, sets up a tent, has a meeting, comes see evangelist so-and-so. He's going to get you worked up emotionally, and then maybe you'll make a profession for Christ. Too many people think that's what evangelist means, but it's not. 
Biblically, these words have meaning. And you know that I am a fool for context and meaning. I drive that year after year, well, week after week. I drive that, that the words on the page actually mean something, and we have to pay attention to what they mean. Had the original writers meant something else, they'd have said something else, but they use these words because these words best convey the meaning that they were after, therefore we have to understand the meaning of the words they used. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I'm talking really fast this morning, aren't I? Okay, so the English word evangelical is derived from the Greek word euangelion which is most often translated gospel in the Bible. Now, the prefix, the EU, means good or positive, the same way that you may hear about a eulogy. Okay, well, that EU at the front of the word means good speech. The euangelion is the gospel. You got that? You got that part? It means good news, good speech, good declaration. And so in the Old English, it became the good spiel. And then it was handed down to us as the gospel, just contracted. So when you say the word gospel, you are saying euangelion. So the word has been translated, not transliterated, but translated from Greek into English. Got it? Yes, to preach the gospel is to euangelizo, translated to evangelize. Now that is transliterated more than it's translated. And so as a consequence, in English, we have a separation between the word gospel and the word evangelist. But in the Greek, the evangelist preaches the evangel. Amen. You got it? So what it means to evangelize is to tell the gospel. It doesn't mean to come and get people emotionally whipped up and get them to make a decision for Jesus. It means none of that. Now, if you are the one who, you angelizo, if you are the one who preaches the gospel, you are referred to as a euangelistus, evangelist. So if you are an evangelist, then you preach the evangel. Now, in Arminian circles... It is very common for them to say that they are allowed to use all kinds of evangelistic methods because the Bible doesn't prescribe a method for evangelism. And I would agree with them if, in fact, the way people get saved is that the evangelist has to talk them into something. If you have to talk people into making a profession for Christ and in so doing, you're saving their soul from hell, then yes, absolutely, whatever you got to do. Whatever you got to say. If you need rock bands and smoke machines and puppets and stick ministries and dancing girls, and you, whatever you got to do, Teach. then do that because people's souls hang in the balance. But because of the connection between the word evangelist and evangel, I disagree with the notion that the Bible does not prescribe a technique for evangelism. There is a technique for evangelism. It is preach the gospel. 
And it is the preaching of the gospel that will convert people. And then they will stay converted. Because if I can talk you into something, and I'm pretty persuasive when I want to be, I can yank out the big words and I can get you all emotional and all worked up and and then I can say, save your soul from hell, choose Jesus. And you'll do it just to get me to shut up. But listen, if I can talk you into it, someone equally persuasive can talk you out of it. That's not salvation. That's an emotional response to an appeal. But if you preach the gospel to somebody and they're converted by that, then from everything we just read in Romans 8, you're not the one who converted them. God is. And if God converts them, they're converted. They stay. Now, Again, I think that we as sovereign grace, Calvinistic people, as reformed people, we have a huge advantage over the Arminians who are trying to convert people. We have a huge advantage. I come out of a church in Los Angeles. You mind if I talk about me for a minute? I come out of a church in Los Angeles. Uh, Tom, by the way, is sitting in the back there. We met at this church in Los Angeles. And... That church was a very Arminian church, and we were convinced that there were people all around us, everybody we came in contact with, potentially was headed for hell or heaven. And so it was dependent on us to make sure that we spoke to them in such a way that we could get a profession out of them. And all of that responsibility was on us. It was on our shoulders. So we, we were taught techniques. We were taught different ways to begin conversations. Things like, do you have a mother? What a stupid question. There's nobody in the room who doesn't have a mother. But it was a way to get somebody to say yes, a sales technique. Get them into the yes mode, yes mode. Start asking yes questions at the end of it. You can say, will you choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, I've said yes to everything else. I guess I'll say yes. But I had all the responsibility. If they didn't get saved, quote unquote, my fault. I should have said it better. I should have used the technique better. I should have stayed with them until they made the decision. I failed in some significant way to talk them into buying my product. And my product was Jesus. Okay, so then I learned about sovereign grace. In other words, I learned what the Bible says. And once I learned that God is sovereign in the matter of salvation, not only did it lift a great weight off my shoulders, but rather than make me unwilling to evangelize, it made me more excited to evangelize because I didn't have to talk people into it, and I knew for certain that the sheep are out there. The elect exist. And all I'm doing now when I evangelize is I'm just looking for the elect. I'm just out there preaching to everybody. I'm making a sincere offer to everybody. But if somebody walks away, 
they walked away. Yeah. If somebody couldn't hear it, bad soil. They couldn't hear it. The devil plucks it away from them. But every once in a while, in the midst of talking to everybody indiscriminately, in order to be willing to tell everybody that I come in contact with, anybody who will sit down and listen, anybody who doesn't curse me and, and storm off, anybody that will listen for a few moments every once in a while, the lights go on. And they get it. And you can see that at that day, salvation came to them. And that's wonderful. So instead of having this burden on my shoulders that I got to be so smart, so quick, so clever, so intelligent, I got to use all these words, I got to implement these techniques. If that technique isn't working, I'm going to move to the next one because I've got to get you to make a profession. And if you don't, you're going to go to hell and it's my fault. Instead of all that, there's joy in evangelizing because I know that God's elect exist and they're waiting for someone to bring them the word. And that is the method, that is the means that God uses to bring people to himself. And that is very, very good news. Because let's be honest, I don't want responsibility for anybody. I got enough trouble dealing with me. And then I'm going to worry about the fact, like Paul said, he said the same word is like the scent of death unto death to some people. Yes. And to some people, it's like life unto life. Yeah. Yeah. And then Paul says, and who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for taking a word that has so much power that when you bring it before people, it can help decide their eternal destiny? Who's sufficient for that? I don't want that job. And yet, the means that God uses is the preaching of his gospel in order to draw people to himself. He could have accomplished it any way he wanted, but the means that he chose was the preaching of the gospel. Now, I've often said, and I'll say it again, it would be much easier if God had made the elect obvious. Right? Because then we would know. We'd be walking down the street and we'd see somebody with blue hair sticking up on one side and we'd go, look, the elect, I'll, I'll go evangelize. But we don't know. We don't know who the elect are. I just decided that the elect were going to have blue hair sticking up on one side. I have no idea what that's about. <laughs> if God made it obvious, then we'd know who to preach to. But he didn't tell us. So we preach to everybody. We evangelize to everybody in search of the elect. And they'll make themselves obvious. You don't have to talk them into it. You tell them a few good things and they'll say, tell me more. Who was it the other day that was talking about people calling him? Was that you, David? Yes, it was. You don't remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, every once in a while, you'll talk to folks who just say, I've got to have more of this. So, the sovereignty of God and the necessity of preaching go hand in hand, as it turns out. 
Unlike our critics who have said, because God is sovereign, because you believe and teach an absolutely sovereign God, why would you evangelize? Why would you preach? God is going to save who he's going to save. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God's sovereignty and humans telling humans the good news go hand in hand. I like J.R. Packer's book on evangelism and sovereignty. Actually, this is just a summarization of it. He says, and, and I think this is a great point, he says, two motives spur believers to evangelize constantly. Kind of what David was talking about. That everybody that's a blood-bought witness, we're all responsible to go tell the good news. This thing, by the way, on my ear is making me crazy. He said, two motives spur believers to evangelize constantly. The primary motive is love to God and concern for his glory. And the secondary motive is love to humans and concern for their welfare. That is the motivation for for evangelizing. Evangelization should spring up spontaneously and naturally for believers. It's part of who we are as blood-bought witnesses, as Holy Spirit-filled witnesses, as people who love God and love people. So is it honest of us to preach to the unsaved? That'll be the next criticism. Somebody will say, well, then you're not being genuine if you know that you're preaching or evangelizing to somebody who God did not choose from the foundation of the world. So then is it a sincere offer? And the answer is, yeah. It's a completely sincere offer. We are telling sinners, all sinners, every sinner, be reconciled to your God. We are calling men to repent. We are calling men to understand that they can be saved, avoid the fires of hell, escape the judgment, and can live eternally in the presence of God. And it's a sincere offer. Whether or not they take us up on the offer is between them and God. But the offering is our job. Here, let me use this example. Again, this is driving me crazy. Um, Book of Jonah. This will connect in just a moment. You're going to think, Jonah, what's that got to do with evangelizing? But stick with me for a moment. So the book of Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah, right? So God tells Jonah, go tell Nineveh, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. And so Jonah, of course resists, he gets in a boat, he's swallowed by a fish, he's spit back up by the fish, makes the three-day journey, and then ultimately ends up in the very place that God said initially he was going to go. So again, God's sovereignty drove Jonah to the very place God told Jonah he was going to go, even as Jonah resisted, used his free will. So he goes to Nineveh and he tells the Ninevites what God said. God is going to destroy you. Then the Ninevites repent. And God does not destroy them. And the end of the book is Jonah's mad at God 
for not doing what he said he was going to do. Okay, so here's the big theological question. Did God actually change his mind? Or was it always his intention to have the Ninevites repent? And was the means that he used to get them to repent sending them a prophet saying, God's going to destroy you? Even though Jonah was upset about it, God knew exactly what he was doing because think about the history of Nineveh for a moment. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. As you continue on through the Old Testament, through the kings and through the, through the chronicles, you'll find out that God ended up using Assyria to punish Israel for the things Israel had done. But that was after Jonah. And had Nineveh actually been destroyed, being the capital of Assyria, there'd be no Assyrian empire with which God could punish the Israelites. But God knew that he was going to use Assyria to punish the Israelites, and therefore his intention was to keep Assyria going. So he caused them to repent. But notice that he didn't tell Jonah, I'm going to make them repent. In other words... God tells us as much as, as we need to know. God operates on a need-to-know basis. He'll tell you, here's my word. Will somebody please just kill this thing? There, maybe I've got it. God operates on a need-to-know basis. And he will tell you his gospel. He will tell you his word. But he's not always going to tell you what the outcome's going to be. And that's the way God has always operated. He's not going to tell you who the elect are. He's not going to tell you that as you preach the gospel, there are some people who are going to respond and some people who don't know who those people are. He's going to operate on a need-to-know basis. And as much as you need to know is go preach the gospel. That's as much as you need to know. The saving part... The end result part is up to God. Because Jonah didn't know that God intended to use the Assyrian Empire and bring them down on Israel. He didn't know that. That was going to happen later. But God knew it. And so therefore he had Jonah operate in a particular way so that God could bring about the plan that God intended. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know what his ultimate outcome is going to be. All you know is what you've been told to do. Therefore, go do it. And you don't get to be like Jonah. You don't get to go back and be angry at God because he didn't do it your way. (laughs) You got to end up saying exactly what Jonah said when he was in the belly of the great fish. That's when he came up with salvation is of the Lord. So some people will say, if you're Calvinist, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then then again, why would you evangelize? But the history of the United States, and indeed the history of the world ever since the Reformation, proves the lie of that argument. Because the simple fact is Calvinists have been evangelizing and bringing about worldwide evangelistic efforts for years. I'm going to read from a book by Mitch Cervinka.
called Removing the Doctrinal Obstacles to Calvinistic Evangelism. Just a couple of paragraphs here. Because, again, uh, I operate on the assumption that there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim read stuff. But he asks the question, is Calvinism incompatible with evangelistic zeal? This is one of the ob objections that is often raised against Calvinism. But one needs only examine Protestant history to see that Calvinists have been on the forefront of evangelism and missions. George Whitfield was outspoken in affirming all five points of Calvinism, and yet he was one of the most zealous and effective evangelists of the Great Awakening. Wherever he traveled, both in England and America, people would turn out by the thousands to hear him preach in the open fields. The modern missionary movement that began in 1792 was begun by a Calvinistic Baptist, William Carey. He left England to minister the gospel in India. With the help of William Ward and Joshua Marshman, he founded 26 churches and 126 schools and translated the Bible into 44 languages, including Sanskrit. In 1812, Adam Judson, another Calvinistic Baptist, sailed to Burma, becoming the first American to depart for the overseas mission field. Historic Calvinism teaches that the gospel is to be proclaimed indiscriminately to all men, that all men are responsible to believe the gospel, and that God promises salvation to all who come in faith to Christ and receive it. For this reason, the term evangelical Calvinism is an apt description of the historic Calvinistic position regarding the gospel. Historic Calvinists believe in proclaiming the gospel to all men, and calling all without exception to come to Christ and be saved. And some of the most prominent evangelists and missionaries of history were in fact evangelical Calvinists. Lorraine Bettner writes in his book, Calvinism, Calvinism in America. He writes, when we come to study the influence of Calvinism as a political force in the history of the United States, we come to one of the brightest pages of all Calvinistic history. Calvinism came to America on the Mayflower, and Bancroft, the greatest of American historians, pronounces the Pilgrim Fathers, quote, Calvinists in their faith according to the straightest system. John Endicott, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, the second governor of the colony, Thomas Hooker, the founder of Connecticut, John Davenport, the founder of the New Haven colony, and Roger Williams, the founder of the Rhode Island colony, were all Calvinists. Never in the world's history had a nation been founded by such people as these. Furthermore, these people came to America not primarily for commercial gain or advantage, but because of deep religious convictions. And it seems that the religious persecution in various European countries had been providentially used to select out the most progressive and enlightened people for the colonization of America. At any rate, it is quite generally admitted that the English, the Scotch, the Germans, the Dutch have been the most 
masterful people in Europe. So let it be especially remembered that the Puritans, who formed the great bulk of the settlers in New England, brought with them this Calvinistic Protestantism that they had learned at home that they were truly devoted to the doctrines of the great reformers and that they had an aversion for formalism and oppression, whether in the church or in the state. And that in New England, Calvinism remained the ruling theology throughout the entire colonial period. History is eloquent in declaring that American democracy was born of Christianity and that that Christianity was Calvinism. The great revolutionary conflict which resulted in the formation of the American nation was carried out mainly by Calvinists, many of whom had been trained in the rigidly Presbyterian College of Princeton, and this nation is their gift. These Calvinist founders gave us the gift of this country. So, again, I think we can argue that knowledge of Calvinism, knowledge of Reformed doctrine, adherence to the five points does not undermine the idea of evangelism. It is at the very heart, soul, and core of evangelism. You understand me? All right, that's it. I'm losing this thing. All right, I'm nearly done. And I, I appreciate that you believed me. Squeeze it down. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. What are you doing telling me this now? I've been up here struggling with this thing for a half hour. Thank you. You will also notice that Roger leapt from his seat and actually fixed it while you sat there and told me what to do. It's okay. It just keeps moving. Whoa. Okay, so let's just take a moment and talk about the earliest sermons in the book of Acts. When you look at the book of Acts, you pretty much see the earliest sermons that were preached to the church and preached to people to evangelize them and to bring them into the church. Now think for just a moment about how important God's sovereignty had to be at that point because the early apostles were being persecuted constantly. We've been talking about this a lot. They were undergoing constant persecution from the Jews, from the Romans, from all the civil authorities, from anybody who disagreed with them. They didn't just disagree with them intellectually. They jailed them, they beat them, they stoned them, they put them in mud pits, they boiled them in oil, they flayed off their skin... They drove them through with swords. I mean, it was bad if you were a Christian, okay? And then those same people who were undergoing that kind of persecution were out there telling people, come join us. Come be one of us. Now, if it were just a human enterprise, any human being looking at the evidence would say, no, no. No, that doesn't look fun. It has to be the work of God that brings people to faith in Christ. 
because even to this very day we continue to suffer the persecution of this world that wants Christians to shut up, sit down, and go away. And we do it because, again, we're not trying to please people. We're trying to please God. And this must be God's enterprise. And the earliest sermons that you see in the book of Acts reflect that very thing. That this is God's doing, not our doing. For instance, if you take a look at, at sermons that, let's say, Stephen preached back in Acts 6, he preached a sermon to a, a mostly Jewish audience. And his sermon was made up of the history of Israel. And he repeated for them the common known history so that they would be agreeing, agreeing, yes, these things happened to Abraham, Moses, David, yes, we get all that. And then he added as an addendum to the end of Israel history, he added Jesus as the completion of or the further movement of Jewish history. And the Jews who heard him gnashed their teeth against him and stoned him dead. Then you get to the day of Pentecost. Look at that sermon. It's essentially the same sermon. Peter preached the history of Israel and then preached the onset of the Holy Spirit and Christ coming and dying for us. So here's two sermons by two different people that are both the preaching of the gospel. They're essentially the same. In one sermon, 3,000 people got saved and cried out, what must we do to be saved? In another sermon, same sermon, they gnashed their teeth and killed him. Well, then this has to be God making the difference. Because some people just aren't going to hear it and they're going to hate it. And not only are they going to hate it, they're going to hate you for saying it. But sometimes some people are going to hear it and be moved by it, be turned by it, be regenerated by it. And so the sermon, as I keep trying to stress, the sermon didn't change. The technique, the method didn't change. The method was tell the truth of what the scriptures say. Tell the gospel. That's the evangelistic method. How people respond is between them and God. I think that Acts 13, starting at verse 46, is a perfect example of both sovereignty and evangelization working together. Starting in Acts 13, verse 46... It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. They're talking to the Jews. Since this is the Jewish Messiah who is the further completion of God's dealings with the nation of Israel who he chose, it was appropriate, it was right that the gospel would come to you first because it's intended for you first. This is a Jewish Messiah. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves as unworthy of eternal life, notice that as they repudiate the gospel, they demonstrate that they're not worthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus says the Lord, he has commanded us 
I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here's the sovereign part. Okay, all of that was evangelizing, evangelizing, evangelizing the Jews. They turned away. Going to the Gentiles, they celebrated. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's evangelism and absolute sovereignty. Now, Paul did not say, you Jews are likely to reject this. And so since I know that you're likely to reject it, I won't bring you it. I'm not going to preach to you. I'm going right away to the Gentiles because I stand a better shot with them. That's not what happened. He preached to the Jews to demonstrate that they were unworthy of the eternal life in Jesus Christ. Then he turned to the Gentiles. Then they responded to the gospel because they were appointed to eternal life. So that is sovereignty and evangelism. What did Jesus do for three and a half years? He taught. He evangelized. He says in Matthew 11... I'm going to start at verse 25 and read to 27. It says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in, in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal God. That's how people come to know God. People come to know God because Christ himself through his Holy Spirit has revealed God. I said two nights ago, two mornings ago, two days ago, two years ago. When was it? When did I say this? I said Christianity is a revealed religion. Here, let me put it this way. Uh, I study Greek. Uh, I am certainly not a Greek expert. I don't proclaim to be. I'm not a Greek expert, but I'm a Greek student. Now, I think learning Greek is a really good tool. Learning Hebrew is a really good tool. But when Jesus was here on the planet, he was speaking to Greek speakers. He was talking to people in their mother tongue. He spoke to Hebrews in Hebrew languages. And they didn't understand him. So again, whether it's English, whether it's Hebrew, whether it's Greek, whether it's any language, as long as the essence of the gospel is preached, it is still God who has to take that word and quicken it to people's hearts and turn their heart and their mind toward God. He still has to do the saving regardless of what language it's done in. You get that? He reveals the truth to his own people. 1 Corinthians 2 1 to 13, oh, I'm not going to be able to read all that, but here we go. And when I came to you, brethren, 
I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came and preached the gospel. That's his evangelistic method. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So he wasn't clever and he didn't use big words and he didn't have a technique and he didn't talk people into it. He was weak, he was trembling, but he told them the gospel. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age have understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and things which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depth of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those things taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The end result of that is spiritual conversion. Man-made words, man-made thoughts result in man-made conversion. And man-made conversion, as we know, is faulty. Anybody in here ever changed their mind about anything? All the time. You better all raise your hands. We're changeable. We're malleable. We change all the time. We need something with rigor. We need something that we can stand on. We need something that doesn't change. We need something that's strong and supportive and can hold us up and get us through. We need something that doesn't change. We need the very gospel of the Spirit of God because that doesn't change. All right, one more thing. Elder Spots, I know you're waiting. I'm going to get out of your way in just a minute. Don't do that.
Do you speak for the group, though? I think that's the, I think that's the important question. Now look at this. This is really, really, really interesting. Okay, turn to Acts 16. I want you to see this for yourself. Turn to Acts 16. We're going to start at verse 6. And they, that's Paul and all his company, the strongest evangelists in the Middle East at this time, the earliest, strongest, strongest evangelists of the grace of God are out preaching. And they pass through the Phrygian and the Galatian region. Having been, look at the next words, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Isn't that interesting? Because you would think that God would say, just go wherever you're going to go. Just go tell people. So, as a result... When they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, which, by the way, would have taken them northeasterly. And passing through Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Think about that in big geographic terms. Paul and his company intended to go northeast into the eastern world, and yet the Spirit of God prohibited them and sent them west into Macedonia, into Italy, into the areas that that are the European empire. And do you know, for the last 2,000 years, the Christian nations that have published the gospel to the whole rest of the world came out of the Western world. They don't come out of China. It didn't come out of Japan. It didn't come out of India. No, it comes out of Europe, comes out of America, comes out of England because God's in control of the movement of his gospel. And I find that fascinating because God is in charge of who's hearing, who's being saved. In other words, this is just like the Jonah story that I told you a few minutes ago. In other words, God knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. He's executing the plan. He's telling even Paul and his people, just do what I tell you. Just go where I say go. Just preach to who I say preach to. I'll take care of the rest. Paul didn't know that the end result of it was going to be that the Western world was going to be the British and American Bible societies that were going to publish the Bible all over the rest of the world. He didn't know that. God knew that. God was planning that. God intended that. So again, in your your evangelistic methods, you go out and you preach. You do what you're told to do, but you don't know what God's going to do with it. I've said a word or two to people. This is very similar to David's story, and I think we all have stories like this. But we have those stories of people who, who wanted nothing to do with us. Yes. Okay, so Alex is here. I'm going to talk about Alex. 
Alex is one of our deacons. He was late. Okay, and so, yeah. Yeah. When Alex and I first met, Alex hated me. Is that fair? Alex was, <laughs> I didn't like you. Alex is a graduate of a Church of Christ college. He knew his Arminian theology. He had it down. And when this little bald-headed white Calvinist comes up to him and starts saying, you know, none of that stuff you believe is true. Well, we don't like each other. Well, I liked him. He just doesn't like me. Now look, here's the point. I didn't know that in those early conversations, God was working on him. God was molding him. God was changing him. God was converting him. I didn't know that. I just knew that if I told the truth, if I said what the Bible said, that it was either going to save him or condemn him. And thank God, it saved him. And he's sitting here now. Romans 10, 14 to 16. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard about? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they were sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed our glad tidings, our gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So that's what we're doing. We're going out there and we're preaching the truth of the gospel. We're preaching the truth of what the Bible actually says with actual words, actual ideas, actual concepts, and we're just putting that in front of people and then we're leaving it up to God to decide what He's going to do. He has told us as much as we need to know. We're working on a need-to-know basis. He has taught us as much as we need to know, which is this is the gospel. Go and tell it. Go and preach it. And we, as obedient servants, we, as spirit-filled witnesses... We go out and we do what we are called to do. And bless God, every once in a while, he decides to save some people. And that, again, because he's the actor and because we are the acted upon, everything that he does in the salvation of people is all to his glory and none of it is to ours. I was talking to Elder Witherspoon this morning. And uh, we were talking about Kayla Jackson. And uh, he was saying how sweet it is to be here with all of you. And how Kayla's passing was a reminder that next time we get together, who knows who might be missing? Who knows who will be here? You don't know if you'll be here. So while you're here, love on each other. Treat each other good. 
smile, laugh, sing, praise together. And if it turns out that between now and next year, I don't show up here, then just know that And just know that my love goes with you. I'll see you later.